It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 23rd, 2009. Here in the United States, it's Thanksgiving week. And we all have much to be thankful for. Beginning with the forgiveness of our sins, won by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As he stood in our place, took the punishment we deserved upon himself on the cross, propitiating God's wrath and winning for us redemption, mercy, salvation. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Like I've said a bazillion times, and yes, a bazillion is a, well, it's a Rose Broerian number. Uh, a bazillion times, there's a lot of people making claims about God out there, and uh, a lot of them claims ain't grounded in God's Word or the truth. Just because you have an opinion about God doesn't mean it's true. In fact, <laughs> your opinions about God are likely to be idolatrous. just want to point that out. All right, so it's Monday, short week this week. Uh, we will be playing a best of program on Thursday and Friday. Just want to let you know um, ahead of time. So that that way you can enjoy your family. Enjoy, <laughs> enjoy the Thanksgiving uh, weekend. Don't worry about falling behind. Just it's. It's all grace. Anyway, so today's program, we might as well just dive right into it. We got email. I got three emails I want to get to. Um, <laughs> this is an interesting headline. Uh, global warming uh, researchers admit fraud. Mm-hmm. Apparently, this competing religion known as global warming, we got some cooking of the books going on there. Uh, by the way, cooking of the books just kind of works with the whole global warming theme, if you know what I mean. And then we're going to – last week I said we're going to get to this uh, article uh, from the Larry King Live blog uh, by Hannah Rosen uh, via The Atlantic. And uh, it's – the question is, did Christianity cause the financial crash? This is an interesting um, piece, and I want to just throw it out there just in the, by way of thinking. And then uh, let's see. We're going to uh, t- take a look at Shane Claiborne. Shane Claiborne, I met him when I was at the uh, a- a Christianity 21 conference put on by the Emergent Church. And um, he-, he dresses like a homeless person with dreadlocks. But uh, he's got an article in the Esquire where he where uh, he talks about the gospel. And here's the funny part about it. It's not that it's all wrong. No. This will this will, I think would be a fine example of what we call gospel reductionism. So we're going to take a look at that in light of that that particular view of something called gospel reductionism, and uh, and then we're going to uh, and then today for our sermon review, uh, got a uh, a young pastor uh, from uh, First United Methodist Church in Frisco, te- uh, Texas. He emailed me and asked if I would take a listen to a couple of his sermons. And um, you know, here's the deal. When you email me a suggestion for a sermon, I want you all to know that I actually do screen all of the different sermons that you send me. And if it doesn't make the cut, it's nothing against you personally, nothing against you personally at all. Um, it just it, it for one reason or another, I've I, uh, I've either decided not to review the sermon 
or um, it, it's something that I've I've put off into the hang on till I deal with this topic bin. The, the, just just want to let you know that's how this works. And uh, this young gentleman's name, by the way, is uh, Scott uh, Kingsol- uh, Kingsolver. And we're going to do a Scott Kingsolver twin spin. I've got two sermons I want to review from this guy. And um, he's asked me to do some constructive criticism. And i got to tell you, this guy has a, a pretty good grasp on law and gospel. And so both of the sermons we're going to review, are they fall into the good category. And um, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to take a listen to what he could be doing to take it to a different level. And, and what I mean by that is is a great category. And so I'm going to offer him some constructive criticism along those lines. And uh, so I guarantee you that you're going to hear the gospel in both of his sermons. I'm, I'm very proud to say that. And uh, and so what we're going to be doing is listening for ways in which we can help uh, Scott uh, identify some things, some weaknesses in his preaching, and see if we can uh, help him shore some of that up, uh, so that uh, he can even, you know, he can more boldly proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So that's going to be the balance of our program. And um, now here's the deal: got an email. We're going to we're just dive right into email. I think that's where we're going to go. So looking at my my large stack of things, we're going to be working on. I got it. My, you've all, if you've been listening to the program. Uh, you know that uh, recently uh, my new favorite phrase has been wax eloquent. Well, I got an email from somebody, not exactly sure who the name of the person, but they sent me a link. They sent me a link, and the, it, it, the, the note, very cryptic from this anonymous listener, was just a tidbit on your favorite phrase's meaning that you might find interesting. And so I clicked on the link, and it was... Um, Written from the point of view who somebody from somebody who really loves grammar, and as a result of it, I have learned that my new favorite phrase, "wax eloquent," is not the right way of expressing this particular phrase. Wax being a verb, it needs an adverb to go with it, uh, and so as a result of it, I'm now modifying my new favorite phrase from "wax eloquent" to "waxing eloquently." Waxing eloquently would be the correct improper grammatical way of expressing this particular phrase. And so for those of you who have allowed yourself to be influenced by my bad grammar on wax eloquent, uh, I am repenting of my bad grammar and will be adopting the the correct grammatical form of this uh, phrase and uh, no longer be using its degenerated form, and I will be waxing eloquently. Wax being a verb, it takes an adverb. That, that So there you have it. Just I want to let you know, uh, to this anonymous uh, listener, I have read your grammatical critique, the, the grammatical critique that was offered, and I stand repentant. And so I will therefore uh, demonstrate fruit in keeping with that repentance by referring to my now new newer f- favorite phrase, waxing eloquently. So... <laughs> Just want to let you know. Thanks for the email, though. That was a very interesting to read. Again, I am not. <laughs> I am not above reproach. I am. I am a sinner just like the rest of all y'all. And uh, that being the case, you know, I am prone to mistakes, even grammatical mistakes. In fact, probably even more prone to those. <clears throat> it, well, as prone to those as I am to sinning. Just want to say anyway, because I know I'm inventing stuff, words and phrases all the time so all right got a got some feedback from uh, pastor jervis nicholas edward charmley 
on the uh, the No Christians Allowed sermon. That If you haven't listened to that one, it's a little tough to listen to because of the fact that um, partway through the sermon, the uh, pastor there, aside from completely biffing it on law and gospel, which he does in a supreme way, uh, I think it's Pastor Bill May is his name, uh, he, on top of that, uh, makes the outrageous and ridiculous claim that Jesus partied with sinners where women's were partying in such a way that they had too much to drink in their, um, sorry to say it, this is his way of saying it, uh, women were partying in such a way that their boobies were hanging out. I, yeah, I know if you haven't heard the sermon review, go back and listen to it. And um, <laughs> just enough to make you go, why, 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 why? Has this is this where Christianity has gone? I, I well, personally, I think pastors like this are actually a punishment from God. That's just kind of how I view them. Anyway, Pastor Charmley writes. He says, "Dear Chris, concerning the sermon, no Christians allowed by Bill May. Oh, where to begin? <laughs> I could hear Pastor Charmley in his distinguished British accent saying that. <clears throat> First of all, I think such sermons ought to be uh, christened." Shock jock sermons. Now, Pastor Charmley, I have not disagreed with you yet that I'm aware of. Maybe I have, but I have not. Maybe I I don't remember the last time I actually came to the airwaves here at Fighting for the Faith and said, I disagree with Pastor Charmley. Don't know if that's happened yet, but at this point, I must take umbrage. I must disagree. Uh, you, you said you think that such sermons ought to be christened shock jock sermons. I don't think such sermons can be christened. Um, there's no way to christen them. <laughs> they they are not christenable. Is is that a phrase? <laughs> we continue. Anyway, so he thinks that they should be called maybe a shock jock sermons, and uh, all the men who give them are definitely shock jock preachers. Yeah, I agree there. The whole aim of the thing is to offend people. No doubt the uh, the bloke thinks he's cool and edgy because he uses words like poop, crap. And boobies from the platform. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't call it. Yeah, it's a platform there or the stage, but not the pulpit. In fact, he's just immature. In fact, he was so immature that if he'd been in, uh, he'd been any more immature, they would have had to have brought him on stage in a pram. <laughs> uh. Uh, yeah, by the way, a pram, if you think of it, a baby buggy or a baby stroller, that's what a pram is. If I learned that term, the term pram in, when I was a kid reading uh, uh, Peter Pan. Anyway, uh, we continue. The reason it was so long is that it was uncontrolled, rambling, and just plain silly. The use of Greek words by a man who obviously doesn't know Greek. Oh, yeah, that was so obvious. Because he can't pronounce the words. Not even close. Not, um, he says, is one of the major signs of someone who wants to be seen as more learned than they really are. In fact, it makes you sound stupid. But there you go. Rather like wearing sunglasses in a club, the use of offensive language gives the false impression that you are cool. <clears throat> as for the whole thing about the word Christian, he just shows that he's drawing on someone else. Most people are unaware of the use of the word in First Peter, uh, but the but the fact that Luke says nothing about it actually being a bad name is surely a sign that it was adopted by the church. Exactly. Great historical point, uh, Pastor Charmley. 
never in the scriptures does it say anything about the term Christian being a, a derogatory term. And it's quite obvious that the Christians uh, adopted it to themselves. Uh, we see this in recent history with the Methodists. The name Methodist was originally an insult, meaning something like fanatic. Uh, but the Methodist Church and the Calvinist Methodists would never say something was being rude by calling them Methodists today. The same, I would suppose, would be the case of Lutherans. Of course, the bloke doesn't know what he's talking about. If he if he was, he'd never had got up the, in the first place and would have spoken for no more than 40 minutes. Great points, Pastor Charmley. Again, the only thing I disagree with you on is that we should christen such uh, sermons as shock jock sermons because I don't think they're christenable. <sighs> Again, thank you for the email, Pastor Charmley. Okay, got an email here from Sheila. And Sheila writes, she says, Hello, Chris. I would like to ask you to do something on your show when you get a chance. Could you explain what the church is supposed to be. The church in the Bible is the body of Christ. We are to be of one mind and, uh, and, uh, and unified together as brothers and sisters. There are pastors whom are, uh, whom are to be male who got, whose job is to feed the flock, correct? So when I go to church, am I to expect being fed God's word from the pastor? Am I right? She says, well, the church I go to, I started noticing things uh, before I started listening to you but could not pinpoint anything well after listening to you i'm able to just i'm able to just see things that are really wrong i've met with a pastor my husband and i and i told him that the the main thing that i was worried about was that we were not being fed the gospels on the back burner pulled to the front for a little while just to be pushed back under again well the next sermon a different pastor from the same church said awesome things can happen when a people of god uh, when when a group of people that will respond to the voice of God will plant their feet firmly where God has placed them because then you can throw out all of the wise financial decisions. You can throw out all of what uh, the church down the street is doing. You can throw out what the other programs are happening. You can throw out whether or not you're being fed or not being fed. You can swallow some decisions you might not agree with, but you can move forward knowing that God is the invisible architect that is building something uh in you and yeah okay sheila here's the deal okay there is a big debate going on right now in christianity and part of the debate is has you know, has really been taken to the forefront as a result of something called the reveal now study which was first conducted at willow creek uh, willow creek and the willow creek association uh in fact are promoting the reveal now study and what happened is, is that the Reveal Now study is a study designed to qualitatively, qualitatively look at what's going on inside of churches. And what happened is, is that uh, Willow Creek was one of the first churches to take the Reveal Now study. And the Reveal Now study showed that the uh, the most mature Christians at Willow Creek were the ones who were most dissatisfied with the church and with preaching and what was going on there because they were, quote, not being fed. And uh, there's a lot of churches in the Willow Creek Association, and they and this was a big news story. And what was Willow Creek's solution that, you know, because, again, keep in mind that uh, Bill Hybels uh, was one of the early adopters and innovators of the seeker-driven methodology that is so predominant in evangelicalism today. 
and is being followed by many a pastor today in uh, in American evangelicalism. What was their solution to their miserable results from the Reveal Now study? Uh, to those Christians who are most mature, who uh, who they identified, and, and even in their own study, has they, they they have identified them as those people who are quote Christ centered. Well, the uh, solution was that uh, those people need to become self feeders. That was their solution. Okay, and so rather than complaining about the fact that they're not being fed, those people need to understand that it's their responsibility to grow spiritually. And that uh, that it's their responsibility to make sure that they're being fed and that they're feeding themselves uh, from the word of God. Here's the problem, okay? Here's the problem. This is not a biblical answer. This is not a biblical response, okay? Here's the deal, okay? Yes, all of us Christians, we Christians, ought to daily be in God's word, daily praying, daily serving our neighbor, okay? There is some truth to the fact that that uh, we are self-feeders. But, now notice that where I put the but, but that does not excuse a pastor from his biblically given duties okay so here's what's happened is is that those guys those seeker driven guys they don't want to repent okay and so what they've done is they've created this caricature and the character caricature goes something like this you christians at our church who are complaining that you're not being fed what are you a bunch of infants do you need us to put God's word on a spoon and say, here comes the choo-choo, open up your mouth, open wide? No, you're supposed to be more mature than that. And stop complaining about the fact that we're not feeding you. This is not a biblical argument, okay? This is not a biblical argument. Instead, the scriptures teach that pastors are shepherds and that their job is to feed God's sheep, whether they like it or not, that's their God-given job responsibility and duty, okay? Let me give you a couple examples, okay? One of the favorite passages here that we will constantly look at is the 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is from what we call the pastoral epistles. We read, starting at verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time is coming when men will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear now look at 
Verse 2 makes it clear, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. Another way of putting it would be to dedicate yourself to the public proclamation, the public reading of God's word, which is exactly uh, what uh, what you are, what pastors are supposed to do. Okay. In fact, First Timothy chapter four, verse thirteen, the apostle Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, uh, "Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching." Okay. First Timothy chapter four, verse thirteen. Understand this: a pastor has a biblical duty to preach and teach the word, and to administer the Lord's Supper, okay, and to baptize. Those really are the things that they are called to do. The shorthand for it that we refer to it as in the Lutheran Church is word and sacrament ministry, okay? That's the job of a pastor, not according to my opinion, but according to what the scriptures say. Now, I want to point something out in verse 3. Okay, the seeker-driven movement, the primary methodology works like this. You change, the, the pastor changes the service from a place where Christians are being fed God's word and the Lord's Supper is being administered to a way of meeting the felt needs of the local community so that they... Uh, so that the gospel, so that Christianity is enticing enough to them, so that they take next steps. Okay, but here's the deal. Here's how this methodology works. If you read the book "The Purpose Driven Church" by uh, Rick Warren, it lays it out rather clearly. You do first of all, you do, you conduct a sociological survey of quote seekers in the surrounding area around where the church is supposed to be planted. So. Uh, in in uh, in Rick Warren's case, what he did is he went out and conducted surveys among the people in the uh, southern part of Orange County in the Lake Forest, El Toro, Irvine area, um, and you know basically you know asked them what they what you know what they wanted in a church. Okay, if if they were to go to a church, what would they want? Well, the people there. You know, they they expressed different opinions. They wanted a, a service that was shorter, music that was more upbeat, uh, sermons that covered topics that were relevant to them, and those uh, relevant topics had to do with things that were really tailor made for uh, the people in the community. And what they did is they created a profile. The profile uh, is like the average saddleback person that they're trying to reach. And they actually gave a name to that person, that, that psychological profile that they conduct, that they created. And the name of that guy is called Saddleback Sam. Okay. He's, uh, he's a yuppie. He drives a particular kind of car. He dresses in a particular kind of way. And his particular needs are expressed in these types of things. And so what you do is you get, you, you program your church year so that your sermons are basically dealing with the issues that Saddleback Sam wants to have addressed. Okay? So Saddleback Sam, I mean, he's he, he works really long hours, and so he's stressed out, and so you have to give sermons to deal with stress. Okay, Saddleback Sam, uh, you know, he's an up-and-coming person, 
but uh, may may have struggles with his his job and his career. So you give sermons, you know. So Saddleback Sam needs to understand what his purpose in life is. Saddleback Sam, uh, you know, maybe struggling in his marriage, and so you give him strategies to make his uh, his uh, marriage more satisfying. Saddleback Sam is uh, is struggling with uh, parenting and wants to be a good parent, but may not know exactly how to be. So you give him practical advice on how to be a good parent. Okay, who's driving that then? Well, Saddleback Sam is in charge of the messages that are preached at Saddleback Church, and just like the guy, you know, the the unique profile, uh, you know, that they've created in uh, South Barrington, Illinois, is the is what drives uh, the, the the sermon topics at Willow Creek. Same in Granger Community Church. So the idea here is is that um, the pastors then teach what the people who are not even Christians want to hear. But that is exactly what the Apostle Paul prophesied would happen, not in a positive way, but in a negative way. Let me read the passage again. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Preach God's word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction because the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Where does sound doctrine come from? From a careful reading and interpretation and understanding and teaching of God's word. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and every pastor, every single pastor who has bought into seeker-driven methodology is a fulfillment of the prophecy given by the Apostle Paul to Timothy that was a negative prophecy. The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from hearing the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. They think these seeker driven guys by preaching sermons that people that see, they think quote seekers want to hear that they think that's evangelism. The apostle Paul flips that completely on its head. No, the proper way to do evangelism is to preach the word and to preach sound doctrine. That's how you do evangelism. There is no evangelism without the pre- correct preaching and teaching of God's word and sound doctrine. You cannot correctly convey the Christian faith by twisting God's word and giving people what they want to hear. This passage makes that clear. Now, let me let me also throw into the mix. Um, I'm going to look real quick here. Uh, let's see here. I, I got to switch translations. I did that from the NIV. Oh, man. Oh, what am I going to do? 
Okay, let's see here. I'm going to look in the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of John. Okay, uh, <clears throat> listen to this. John chapter 21, verse 17. Okay, uh, actually backing up. Uh, John chapter 21, uh, might start at 15. Hang on, John 21. Here we go. Um, okay, I'll tell you what, we'll start at verse 9. Context, context, context. When they, now this is after Jesus has risen from the dead, and uh, the uh, the apostles had sent uh, had went up to uh, Galilee. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, "Bring some of the fish that you have caught." So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, "Come, have breakfast." Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, "Who are you?" For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and stood and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. So he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend my sheep. He said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you don't want to go. This is referring to how um, Peter died. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So here's the deal. Pastors have the job of preaching the word and feeding God's sheep. They do not, under any circumstances, have an escape clause written for them that basically says, oh, we have the freedom to employ a different method of doing church to reach the lost. Eh, No, because the methods that they're employing are exactly what is spoken against by by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. They are preaching what people want to hear, not what people need to hear. And as a result of it, it is absolutely false that just because Christians need to learn how to be in God's word and to read God's word on a daily basis, that that somehow excuses a pastor uh, from uh, feeding God's sheep. They have no such freedom granted to them in the scriptures. And if you are attending a church where the pastor refuses to do his God-given duty and thinks he has more important things to do than to feed God's sheep with God's word, you either need to throw that pastor out because he is in rebellion against God and what the job of a pastor is, and if that won't work, then you need to consider going somewhere else. All of us, me included, listen, I read God's word and study it, deeply on a daily basis. But I cannot tell you how incredibly refreshing and useful it is for me to be able to attend a church 
where my pastor feeds me, and boy, does he feed me, and I thank God for it. Because even I, even though I teach my family God's Word on a daily basis, even though I'm in God's Word on a daily basis doing program prep for fighting for the faith, I still need to be fed God's Word because, after all, I too am one of Jesus' little lambs. I'm a she- I am a sheep, and God has placed a shepherd, an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, to tend to the sheep, and I am one of them. I will never, ever, in all of my life, outgrow the need to be fed God's Word. And if you have a pastor who refuses to do his biblical duty, you need to get rid of him or you need to find a different church. Because that pastor is in rebellion. And it is, it is, it's not even a biblical argument to say, well, you need to learn how to be a self-feeder. No pastor, you need to obey. Because nowhere in the scriptures... Does it say that if you have sheep that are, quote, self-feeders, that that excuses you from the job of actually feeding God's sheep? No, there is no escape clause. This is an unconditional clause. And if you, you don't have a pastor if he's not feeding his sheep. Plain and simple, you have somebody who's in rebellion. And no, you do not do evangelism by giving people what they want. You only do evangelism through the proper proclamation of law and gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and by proclaiming sound doctrine. You cannot teach the Christian faith by twisting God's word, plain and simple. Sheila, I hope that answers your question. And uh, keep in mind, I will be praying for you and your husband as to what it is that you need to do at this point. All right, we are up on our first break. Of course, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. Again, my name there is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll come in again. 
<clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian gentle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with A Skeleton in God's Closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Warning, if your pastor has given up the job of being a shepherd and thinks that he's a cattle rancher, listening to this program will expose that very problem and fact. All right, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and uh, we survive and are able to bring you this program only as a result of your generous gifts and contributions to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And right now we're looking for 1,000 of our listeners. And we have a lot more than that. I know that there's a lot more than 1,000 out there listening. So I'm talking to you, 
We need a thousand of our listeners to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. It is a mere six dollars and ninety-five cents a month. It comes right out of your account automatically, and uh, and when we get to a thousand, then that will ensure at least the longevity of the program because we're able to meet our bills, our, our, our monthly expenses, month after month after month after month. And so the way you join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew is to go to fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew. And uh, shortly after you do so, you will receive a, an email from cove at piratechristianradio.com uh, giving you access to our secret Pirate Christian Radio Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of plundered theological resources designed to help you to go deeper into God's Word, biblical theology, sound doctrine, and the sorts. And, of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount above and beyond that, we always appreciate that. And the way you do so is to uh, click on the Donate button or make your gift payable to... Uh, fighting for the faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. You know what? I, I wanted to add one more uh, <clears throat> thing to my comments regarding Sheila. Uh, the, the questions that she, uh, that she had here. Let me read to you what the Apostle Peter writes to uh, elders and, and pastors. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. This is First Peter chapter 5, by the way. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, and not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Okay, Shepherd the flock of God. Part of the job of a shepherd is to feed and tend to God's sheep. This harkens back to what Jesus said to Peter in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Shepherding includes feeding. And if you have a shepherd who refuses to feed the sheep, that is a miserable and worthless shepherd and uh, not a true shepherd of, the tr- of, the, of, go- of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And let me read to you also one more thing. Jude chapter, uh, Jude chapter, Jude verse 12 has something very interesting to say. And, um, describing false teachers and the false people who've slipped in among them. Okay. I'll start at verse eight. Um, yet in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. By the way, if you have a pastor who thinks that he can actually, that he's actually being a shepherd when he, rejects the authority of Christ and of God's word to feed the sheep. That is one who rejects authority. This is a false teacher. Uh, But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, like blaspheming, uh, you know, the preaching and teaching of God's word, Um, uh, although they, uh, and like unreasoning animals, they understand instinctively woe to them for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. What's the gain that they're getting a big mega church. Okay. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds who feed only themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Okay. Uh, these are wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved. The scriptures speak very poorly and sternly warn against those pastors who feed only themselves. 
They are basically uh, waterless clouds. That's not a... You see, a true biblical Christian pastor is not a waterless cloud. A true biblical pastor is a cloud that rains and showers the word of God and the gospel down Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Okay? So these pastors are in, in complete rebellion against God and his word. And this is not about, quote, methodology. This is about what God has ordered them to do. So how do you know a pastor who's not who's in rebellion against God? If they refuse to preach the word and feed God's sheep, they are in absolute rebellion against Christ. And this is not a matter of Christian freedom when it comes to the job of a pastor. Not at all. Okay, all right. Moving along here. I got a news story that I've got to convey to you because one of the things we've pointed out here at Fighting for the Faith is that uh, the uh, the whole global warming thing, competing religion. But here we go. The IPCC researchers admit global warming fraud. Apparently, they're cooking the books when it comes to global warming. All right. This is uh, via the newamerican.com. Uh, this is published today. Written by Rebecca Terrell, we read, Global warming alarmists are scrambling to save face after hackers stole hundreds of incriminating emails from a British university and published them on the Internet. The messages were pirated from the Climate Research Unit of the University of East Anglia and reveal correspondence between British and American researchers engaged in fraudulent reporting of data to favor their own climate change agenda. UEA officials confirmed one of the servers was hacked and several of the scientists involved admitted the authenticity of the messages, according to the New York Times. The article opined the evidence pointed to a growing human contribution to global warming is so widely accepted that the hacked material is unlikely to erode the overall argument. Uh-uh. Climatologist Patrick J. Michaels challenged that position. This is not a smoking gun. This is a mushroom cloud. The emails implicate scores of researchers, most of whom are associated with the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, an organization which many skeptics believe was created exclusively to provide evidence of anthropocentric global warming. Among the IPCC elite, embarrassingly, if not criminally cr compromised, is Philip D. Jones, a Ph.D. climatologist at the University of East Anglia, whose work figured prominently in the IPC IPCC third assessment report of 2001. Jones also contributed significantly to the IPCC fourth assessment report in 2007, but he failed to follow through with skeptical investigators asked to review raw data associated with that report. They announced intent to use UK freedom of information laws to obtain the data, so Jones sent the following email to one of his collaborators, quote, Mike, can you delete any emails that you may have with Keith regarding AR4? Keith will do likewise. Can you also email Gene and get him to do the same? We'll be getting Casper to do likewise. Uh, the Mike in this uh, message is Michael Mann, professor of meteorology at Pennsylvania State University, uh, whose influential hockey stick graph uh, warning of pending global warming eco-catastrophe was found by a congressional investigator to be fraudulent. In another correspondent about AR4, labeled highly confidential, Jones contacted Mann regarding research critical of their global warming platform. Quote, I can't see either of these papers being in the next IPCC report, wrote Jones. Kevin and I will keep them, uh, keep them out somehow, even if we have to redefine what the peer review literature is. 
you get the picture? Uh, the main researchers, the main scientists who are purporting that the, the who are teaching that man is creating global warming, they are fraudulently cooking the books regarding research data and suppressing what uh, true data is on this. And these are people who are so well placed that they're even in their involvement is uh, at, it, 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 with the it, United Nations itself. So this competing global warming religion is built on a fraud data that isn't even true. The closest equivalent that I could come up with would be if Christianity were a fraud, it would be based upon the fraudulent testimony of people claiming they had seen Jesus raised from the dead when he's still dead and they knew and they had hidden the body and stolen it. That's what we're talking about here. This is the equivalent of Christians claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead when he hadn't. When the bones of Jesus are still moldering somewhere in Judea. That's how fraudulent this is. There is absolute fraud going on regarding this competing religion known as global warming. And these people have been cooking the books and the data is not even real. Real data has been suppressed. False data brought forward as if it were true. The, the books have been cooked regarding global warming. It's a false religion. They need to repent, and we need to reject this whole thing. Unbelievable. Doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise me. All right. Moving along from the Larry King Live blog, we read, uh, the headline reads, Did Christianity Cause the Crash? This is by Hannah Rawson. Uh, this is a synopsis of a story that occurred that appeared in the Atlantic Online, the December 2009 uh, edition of the Atlantic. And the uh, the story that it's referencing is called is called "Did Christianity Cause the Crash?" Um, and I th- who wrote this by Hannah Rossin. So let me uh, let me read to you the synopsis of this story. And if you want to read the entire thing, you're going to need to go to the Atlantic.com. And um, and look up, did Christianity cause the crash? This is a very lengthy article, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I'm going to read, read the synopsis that is uh, on the, um, the Larry King Live blog. America's mainstream religious denominations used to teach the, the, faith, the faithful that they would be rewarded in the afterlife. But over the past generation, a different strain of the Christian faith has proliferated, one that promises to make... Believers rich in the here and now, known as the prosperity gospel the claim the, and claiming tens of millions of adherents, it fosters risk-taking and intense material optimism. It pumped air into the housing bubble, and one year into the worst downturn since the Depression, it's still going strong. America's churches always reflect shifts in the broader culture, and Casa del Padre is no exception. The message that Jesus blesses believers with riches first showed up in the post-war years at a time when Americans began to believe that greater comfort could be accessible by everyone, not just the landed class. But it really took off during the boom years of the 1990s and has continued to spread ever since. 
The stitched-together, homegrown theology known as the prosperity gospel is not a clearly defined denomination, but a strain of belief that runs through the Pentecostal church and a surprising number of mainstream evangelical churches with varying degrees of intensity. In Garay's church, God is the owner of all the silver and gold, and with enough faith, any believer can access the inheritance. Money is not the dull stuff of hourly wages and bank account statements, but a magical substance that comes as a gift from above. Even in these hard times, it is discouraged in such churches to fall into despair about the things you cannot afford. Instead of saying, I'm poor, say, I'm rich, Garay's wife has has a Hazel told me one day, the word of God will manifest itself in reality. Now, here's the rub of the story. Many explanations have been offered for the housing bubble and subsequent crash. Interest rates were low, regulations regulation failed, rising real estate prices induced a sort of temporary insanity in America's middle class. But there is one explanation that speaks to a lasting and fundamental shift in American culture, a shift in the American conception of divine providence and its relationship to wealth. In his book, Something for Nothing, Jackson Lear describes two starkly different manifestations of the American dream, each intertwined with religious faith. The traditional Protestant hero is a self-made man. He is disciplined and hardworking and believes that his success comes through careful cultivation of implicitly Protestant virtues in cooperation with a providential plan. The hero of the second American narrative is a kind of gambling man a speculative confidence man, Lears calls him, who, prefer, who prefers risky ventures in real estates and a more fluid, mobile democracy. The self-made man imagines, imagines a coherent universe where earthly rewards match merits. The confidence man lives in a culture of chance with grace as a kind of spiritual luck, a free gift from God. The Gilded Age launched the myth of the self-made man as the Rockefellers and other powerful men in the pews connected their wealth to their vir- to their own virtue. In these boom and crash years, the more reckless alter ego dominates uh, dominates. In his book Lears in his book Lears quotes a reverend named Jeffrey Black who sounds remarkably like Garay. The whole hope of a human being is that somehow in spite of the things I've done wrong, there will be an episode when grace and fate shower down on me and and an unearned blessing will come to me. And that that I'll be the one. Now, listen, okay, this is an interesting take on this, and I recommend reading the article if you want to kind of get the full scope of what's being discussed here. I'm not saying that the prosperity gospel caused the crash, but (laughs) now I got to be careful because I put a but in there. Um, This article is asking some really good questions about this new Christianity that somehow God wants you to gamble everything and and faith is 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 uh, engaging in some kind of risky speculative uh, business in the hopes that if your faith is good enough God's going to shower material blessings upon you it's not salvation by grace through faith uh regarding eternal life it's salvation from poverty salvation by grace uh, through uh, some magical faith in order for you to have the showers of the, the blessings of heaven shower upon your head. And those blessings of heaven is silver and gold. That's not what the Christian faith teaches. 
And so this article is asking some good, good, tough questions. Worth passing along. Worth passing along. Did uh, the prosperity gospel cause the crash? I think it's a contributing factor. And I think that uh, Christianity, we've got to we've got to reject the pros- prosperity gospel, even though it, it, it draws big crowds and big television audiences. We have to reject it and rebuke those who teach it and those who follow it with sound biblical doctrine and call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name. All right. Talk about the gospel. I'm going to read to you part of, uh, well, probably most of an article here by Shane Claiborne. This uh, appeared on the Esquire.com uh, website, and the name of it is, What If Jesus Meant All That Stuff? Now, this is what we call gospel reductionism. I think this is a fine example of it. I've met Shane Claiborne, and uh, again, he looks like a homeless person with dreadlocks, uh, kind of a scary individual. But this is probably one of the most lucid um, versions of the uh, of gospel reductionism that I've heard in a long time. And uh, it's worth passing along in the sense of uh, from an educational point of view, because I, uh, refuting this is really, really easy. But we'll talk about that here in a second here. Uh, so uh, the uh, we read to all of my non-believing sort of believing and used to be believing friends. I feel like I should begin with a confession. I am sorry that so often the biggest obstacle to God has been Christians. Christians who have so much to say with our mouths and so little to show with our lives. I'm sorry that so often we have forgotten the Christ of our Christianity. (laughs) I hate these apologies because they're so ridiculous. Okay, listen. If there are people out there who think that Christianity is some legalistic hellfire religion, uh, it's because of people who... uh, It's because... It's because of people who I don't think are Christians, legalistic pietists. I'm not going to apologize for them. I'm going to preach the true biblical gospel. Okay, so here we go. In in a mea culpa, Shane says, forgive us. Forgive us for the embarrassing things we have done in the name of God. Oh, gag me. The other night, I headed into downtown Philly for a stroll with some friends from out of town. We walked down to Penn's Landing along the river where there are street performers, artists, musicians, and we passed a great mis- uh, magician who who did some pretty sweet tricks, like pour change out of his iPhone. And then there was a preacher. He wasn't quite as captivating as the magician, and he stood on a box, yelling into a microphone, and beside him was a coffin with a fake dead body inside. And he talked about how we're all going to die and go to hell if we don't know Jesus. And there's a problem with this because of what? Shane, we continue. Some folks snickered. Some told him to shut up. And a couple of teenagers tried to steal the dead body in the coffin. And all I could do was think to myself, I want to jump up on the box beside him and yell at the top of my lungs. God is not a monster. Maybe next time I will. What was unbiblical about that, that open air preacher's message? There wasn't anything unbiblical about it. Remember, the name of the article is, What If Jesus Meant All That Stuff? We'll talk about this here in a second. The more I've read the Bible and studied the life of Jesus, the more I've become convinced that Christianity spreads spreads best not through force, but through fascination. But over the past few decades, our Christianity, at least here in the United States, has become less and less fascinating. (laughs) You see, that's our problem. We just don't have a fascinating Christianity. We have given the atheists less and less to disbelieve in the sort of Christianity many of us 
have seen on TV and heard on the radio looks less and less like Jesus. At one point, Gandhi was asked if he, if, if he was a Christian, and he said, essentially, I sure love Jesus, but the Christians seem so unlike, unlike their Christ. A recent study showed that the top three perceptions of Christians in the U.S. among young non-Christians are that Christians are, one, anti-gay, two, judgmental, and three, hypocritical. Okay, all this, all this does, let's walk through the list real quick. Anti-gay, no, Christians are not anti-gay. They hold the biblical line that homosexuality is a sin, and they call homosexuals to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Pretty simple. Judgmental, I can see that because here's the deal. There's a lot of people out there who are legalistic pietists and in the name of Christianity are promoting a Christianity that teaches that uh, in order to get in on God's good side, you got to do follow a list of things and that they are somehow holy because they are supposedly doing these things when they're not, which leads to the hypocritical, uh, uh, the hypocritical chain, uh, you know, complaining about Christians. Yeah, I can understand that legalists really come off as hypocrites because they are, but they're not preaching biblical Christianity. And that's what we must be saying. <clears throat> but that's not, apparently not what Shane Hemps is saying. So what we have here is a bit of a, an image crisis. And much, and much of that reputation is well-deserved. That's the ugly stuff. And that's why I begin by saying that I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's so – I'm so glad you're apologizing on behalf of all the legalists out there. But now for the good news. Now, here's the deal. Shane Hips is saying he's got good news to offer us. You would think that if he has good news to offer us, it would touch on repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Well, we'll see. Now, I want to invite you to consider that maybe the televangelists and the street preachers are wrong and that God really is love. Maybe the fruits of the Spirit really are beautiful things like peace, uh, peace patience, kindness, joy, love, goodness, and not the ugly things that have come to characterize religion or politics or, for that matter, if there is anything I've learned from liberals and conservatives, it's that you can have great answers and still be mean. And that, and that is just as important as being right as being nice. The Bible that I read says that God did not send Jesus to condemn the world but to save it. It was because God so loved the world, that is, that God, the God I know, I, I long for others to know. I did not choose to devote my life to Jesus because I was scared to death of hell or because I wanted crowns in heaven. Okay, but notice he's rejected the doctrine of hell. That's kind of the problem. <clears throat> but because he's good. For those of you who are on a sincere spiritual journey, I hope that you do not reject Christ because of Christians. We have always been a messed up bunch, and somehow God has survived the embarrassing things that we do in his name. At the core of our gospel is the message that Jesus came not for the healthy but the sick, and if you choose Jesus, may it not be simply because of fear of hell or hope for mansions in heaven. Again, here, what's the problem? We're not... It's a matter of why you chose Jesus, but you didn't. Jesus chooses you. <clears throat> Notice the Pelagianism here. One of the uh, Jesus' most scandalous stories, uh, hang on a second. He says, don't get me wrong, I still believe in the afterlife, but too often all the church has done is promise the world that there is life after death and use it as a ticket to ignore the hells around us. I'm convinced that the Christian gospel has as much to do 
with this life as the next, and that the message of the gospel is not just about going to uh, about going up when we die, but also about bringing God's kingdom down. It was Jesus who taught us to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> One of the one of Jesus' most scandalous stories is the story of the Good Samaritan. As, sentim, as sentimental as we may ha, have uh, made it, the original story was about a man who gets beat up and left for, on the side of the road. A priest passes by. A Levite, the quintessential religious guy, also passes by on the other side, perhaps late for a meeting at church. And then comes the Good Samaritan. Uh, you can almost imagine a snicker in the Jewish crowd. Jews did not talk to Samaritans or even walk through Samaria. But the Samaritan stops and takes care of the guy in the ditch and is lifted up as the hero of the story. I'm sure some of the listeners were uh, ticked. According to the religious elite, Samaritans did not keep the right rules and they did not have sound doctrine. But Jesus shows that that true faith has to work itself out in a way that good news is to be most bruised and broken person lying in the ditch. Now, notice he's we're dealing with he's got some grasp of the gospel here. It's so simple, but the pious forget this lesson constantly. God may indeed be evident in a priest, but God is just as likely to be at work through a Samaritan or a prostitute. Wrong category. That's not what that's not what this is saying. That is not what the Good Samaritan is saying. The parable of the Good Samaritan is saying is that God is at work through a Samaritan or a prostitute. Incorrect conclusion. In fact, the scripture is brimful of of God using folks like a lying prostitute named Rahab, an adulterous king named David, and at one point God even speaking to a guy named Balaam through his donkey. Some say God spoke to Balaam through his ass and has been speaking through asses ever since. <laughs> yeah. So if God should choose to use us, then we should be grateful but not think too highly of ourselves. And if upon meeting someone we think God could never use, we should think again. Again, what's missing here? What's missing here? He says this is good news. Where's the cross? Where's Christ dying for the sins of Rahab the prostitute? David, the adulterer and murderer. It's just saying, oh, God uses people just the way they are. No, that's not the good news. The good news is not just that God is love. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And those who do not believe remain under the wrath of God. That's what that passage says. Read all of John chapter 3. Okay. All right. So, and after all, Jesus says to the religious elite who look down on everybody else, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom uh, ahead of you. Why? Because of their repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ, which was given them as a gift through the preaching of the gospel. And we wonder what got him killed. Yeah, the problem is, uh, Shane, you're you're not, where's the cross in all of this? He says, I have a friend in the UK who talks about uh, dirt, dirty theology, that we have a God who is always using dirt to bring life and healing and redemption, a God who shows up in the most unlikely and scandalous ways. After all, the whole story begins with God reaching down from heaven, picking up some dirt and breathing life into it. At one point, Jesus takes some mud, spits into it, and wipes it on a blind man's eye to heal him. The priests and the producers of anointing oil were not happy that day. In fact, the entire story of Jesus is about a God who did not just want to say out there, who want to stay out there, but who moves into the neighborhood, a neighborhood where folks said nothing good could come. 
It is this Jesus who was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, a rabble-rouser, and for hanging out with all of society's rejects, and who died on the imperial cross of Rome. Let's see what he does with this. Reserved for bandits and failed messiahs. This is why the triumph over the uh, over the cross was a triumph over everything ugly we do to ourselves and to others. It's the final promise that love's, love wins. So there you go. There's the cross. The cross is apparently a a, a promise that love wins. No, Christ was there dying for the sins of the world, pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. It's called penal substitution. And so when you look at Shane Claiborne's cross, as gospelish as this sounds, it has a false cross and a false gospel. It's not really the biblical gospel. It's just God reduced down to God is love, and God's not a monster, and I don't believe he's going to send anyone to hell so how do you refute all this real simple what was the name of the story what if jesus meant all that stuff that's kind of the buzz phrase that uh, a lot of these emergent guys are using what if jesus meant all that stuff what if jesus meant it take them back to matthew 25 and just ask the same question what if jesus meant all that stuff what am i referring to matthew chapter 25 real simple the sheep and the goat judgments, okay? Then then Jesus said to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, um, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also... Uh, answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not uh, minister to you? Then he will answer to them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away to eternal punishment. That's the, you know, into the fire prepared for the devil and all of his angels and the righteous into eternal life. What if Jesus meant all that stuff? That's how you answer the question. They're sitting there, they're talking about the gospel as if it somehow cancels out uh, what Jesus said regarding hell and and eternal conscious punishment. It doesn't. It doesn't. Because we are saved by grace through faith. And so, John chapter 3 is correct. Let me read it. John chapter 3. Okay. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, um, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. What if Jesus meant all that stuff? What if Jesus meant it when he said that whoever does not believe in him is already condemned? What if Jesus meant all that stuff? You see, you don't pit the law against the gospel that way. And you don't you don't do what Shane Claiborne has done is basically wiping out uh the, the doctrine of hell because apparently God's not a monster because the God I believe in is the God of love. The biblical God, the God revealed in the scripture, is both loving and just. 
He dies for the sins of the world, and he sends the unbelieving, those who reject his grace, to hell, giving them what they have earned as a result of their sins. All right, we are well past the time for our second break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to dive into our sermon reviews. We're going to review two short sermons today by a young pastor uh, by the name of Scott uh, Kingsolver. And uh, we'll we'll (laughs) dive into them when we get back. Apologize for running long, but you know me. Sometimes I get a little long-winded. All right, so uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection? was a hoax. Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, With a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. The 
Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there, and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. (laughs) And just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. on hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. A couple of good sermons by a really by a young pastor, I think, who really is asking some good questions and has a pretty good grasp on law and gospel, so I'm really looking forward to this sermon review. All right, time for the sermon review music. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Today is no exception. Dun, dun, dun. Today's sermons, we're going we're to review two of them. The second one we may not review in its total. They're both very short. And they're preached by a young guy. This, when I mean that, he's you know he's uh, the associate director of youth ministry at the First United Methodist Church in Frisco, Texas. His name is Scott Kingsolver. And uh, what I, I got to tell you, what I like about this kid—it's funny talking about kids like this—is uh, that uh, he understands long gospel, understands the problems in the church, and is not afraid to preach about them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be listening to his sermons to see where we can offer constructive criticism to where he can really strengthen and uh, make his uh, preaching even that much better. In fact, without any further ado, let's kill the music. Without any further ado, here is um, uh, Scott Kingsolver. And uh, the first sermon is entitled Losing Our Religion. Using, uh, losing Our Religion. Here's Scott. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Glad you're here. Thank you. Um, from 2001 to 2005, a research group from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, was doing a survey, a national study on youth and religion, and they surveyed 3,000 teenagers across the country, and they compiled their overall religious beliefs, and they summarized them in a, kind of a five-point way. And what they titled that summary of the religious beliefs of American teenagers was what they called moralistic therapeutic deism. 
And basically the, the, the beliefs of these teenagers was very moralistic and that it was about being a good person, not being a bad person, doing the right thing. It was therapeutic in that it was their beliefs were so God would help them feel good about themselves, have self-esteem, and, and just generally feel good about life. And it was deistic in that there, there was a God who created the world, and, and you can call him what you want, and he's there for us when we need him, but otherwise not need to be particularly involved in our life. And this group concluded that not only was this the overall ranging uh, prevalent uh, view of teenagers in the country, but among adults this was also very prevalent. And Christianity has always had this problem where there's always been an urge, a temptation, an um, inclination to want to replace Christianity and the gospel with a religion that's more made by us ourselves and our own beliefs and our own ideas. Okay, right off the bat, what's the problem? We, it's idolatry. That, that's really the, the root issue of what's being discussed here. And I think he's done a fine job of setting up the problem. And, uh, and, you know, and so let's continue. Let's see what he does with this problem ideas. And I think in our current context, in current American society, across various denominations, across various types of churches, this is when religion rears its head what it looks like. And I can speak from personal experience because for the first part of my life, up until I was about 19 years old, this was my prevailing religious belief. I would slap the term Christian on it. I believe there was a God and and uh, loved the Bible and thought Jesus was great because I got gifts at Christmas and Easter, and that was wonderful, and I could thank him for that. And he was there for me when I needed him, but that was basically my view. It wasn't until my first year of college that God brought some people in my life, with a couple of good friends, and I heard some various good sermons where I first understood Christianity as it really is and really understood and heard the gospel, and that's really when I became a Christian. And long story short, here I am today, finally preaching in big church, as I used to call it as a kid, and um, sharing uh, God's good news with uh, teenagers and everyone I can meet in my life. And so I want to talk today because I believe this is a problem that always is around churches, and I believe if we can identify it and think about it, we can get around this problem and work through it with God's help. And so today I want to talk about the gospel versus religion. And so we kind of define how I think about religion in this context with moralistic therapeutic deism, but I want to define just so we know what we're talking about the gospel. Gospel meaning, of course, good news. And uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, does probably the best succinct job of describing the gospel in all scripture. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, Christianity is not a thing we have to tell people about. Christianity is a message. It is good news that we tell people. And that message is that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's good news. Right on. Right on. And he's proclaiming good news. Okay? Absolutely no problems here whatsoever with the fact that he's laying out the good news. So you're hearing the gospel. Let's let's continue, though, because what we're listening for, we want to see how we can help him out. I'm taking notes on some things that can help make this better, but let's continue. Obviously, this is a topical sermon at this point. People love good news, right? Right? People love good news. You always say, oh, I got bad news, I got good news. You always hate the bad news, but you love the good news, right? Christianity is good news. And so that is why I think it is so sad when we replace 
good news with mere religion. And so I have three main ways in which this happens and it plays out, and I wanted to discuss those and, and kind of get into those and, and, and figure out how this works. And the first is, and this is going to be contrasting the gospel and religion, the first is that religion is all about what we do. And the gospel is about what God has done, specifically in the person work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians says this perfectly, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, if you believe everything is about what you do, if you believe to be saved, to get into heaven, for God to love you, that you must do something, you implicitly believe the idea that in order for God to love you, you must do the right stuff. This is like a parent getting their children before him or her and saying, if you obey me, then I will love you. You have to earn my love. I hope no one here has been raised by a parent like that, and I... Hope one day if I'm lucky to be a parent, I'm not that kind of parent. And the gospel is different because the gospel says God loves us. Therefore, we can love him. You heard Michelle earlier mention 1 John 4. And in 1 John 4:19, it says, we love because he first loved us. You see, the things we do, the good works that we do are wonderful. Going on mission trips, being a part of a church, being nice to people, sharing God's love are great. But they are to be a response to the gospel. When I became a Christian, I first realized... I had a change in my heart, a change in my mind. Jesus called that being born again. We're different people when we're Christians than we were. And we have a desire, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but out of love, a loving response of worship to God in the things that we do. They can't earn us anything. We can't manipulate God. The things we do are not some key combination. They're not a recipe so God will love us. But they are to be done in worship of God because we love God, because he loves us. That's number one. Number two, religion says it's all about being good and not bad. And the gospel says it's about being forgiven. You see, if you believe... <laughs> Great point. Great point. It's about what you do, then what happens is people make these lists. Sometimes it's a very long and detailed list, and sometimes it's a very short and vague list. But essentially what happens is if you follow the list and you do the right stuff and you don't do the bad stuff, you're a good person. And if you do the bad stuff and don't do the right stuff, you're a bad person. You can see how that would play out and how that could cause issues because typically the rules people make aren't really in the Bible. It's very vague stuff like, oh, you have to look the right way, you have to sound the right way, you have to dress the right way, or you just have to be a good general person in the golden rule. The problem is, is as we just saw in Ephesians, no one can really do that perfectly. But some people think they can, and so they become prideful. I've done everything I need to do, and, well, I'm a good person, and everyone else, they're a bad person. Okay, now this is where I'm going to offer my first critique here. The weakness in the sermon at this point is not the points that he's making, in that he's going after moralistic therapeutic deism. He's, without mentioning it, he's brought out the fact that this is idolatry, and he's making a good contrast between uh, the gospel, the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, and good works that flow from that as opposed to uh, good works done in in a way as to somehow make yourself holy or, or to placate God. Uh, you can't do that, according to uh, Scott. And these are these are fine points that he's making. I think the issue at this point, though, and this I think this just co- comes to the fact that Scott's a young man, and uh, obviously these, these are his first few uh, cracks at actually preaching in, quote, big church, is that uh, he... This this sounds almost academic rather than proclamational. And what I mean is is this. 
I don't hear Sinai thundering. And many pastors are uncomfortable to let Sinai thunder. The problem that he's discussing may be a problem in the greater church. The question is, is that uh, keep in mind, Scott, that uh, the people that you're preaching to, uh, this is the flock that uh, that is there that day that God has given you to proclaim uh, and preach to. And uh, preaching is not a lecture. Preaching is boldly proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's proclamational. And uh, as a result of it, um, this you're preaching it in such a way that it sounds like a it's a general problem in Christendom as opposed to a specific problem that uh, that very real people, real sinners in that congregation are guilty of doing. And so I'm not I'm not hearing Sinai thundering. Now, as a result of it, there there might be a, a, a confusion of law and gospel that's going on here. And what I mean by that is, is I'm referring to CFW Walther's book, The Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel. If you don't have it, I think it'd be a good, uh, good book for you to pick up. In fact, uh, Scott, I'm going to recommend some homework for you. And it's not that I'm, you know, I, I, I like giving homework, but I think the, there's a few books that would help you. First would be CFW Walther's book, The Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel. I'm going to read you the synopsis of the theses here on that in a minute. Another good book that uh, would be uh, really good for you to have is our two by Gearhart Forty. One is called On Being a Theologian of the Cross, and the second is called Theology is for Proclamation. Theology is for Proclamation. Both of those are by Gearhart Forty, and I speci- I really think you would uh, you would benefit from Gearhart Forty's insight about theology being for proclamation. It, it's it would really kind of help help you to step out and proclaim things boldly. And then another really, really good book um, is a book by a guy by the name of Eugene Lowry. Eugene Lowry, the name of the book is called The Homiletical Plot. The subtitle is The Sermon as Narrative Art Form. The Homiletical Plot, The Sermon as Narrative Plot Form. These these are books that will really kind of help step this up and get you out of the realm of the theoretical problem out there to really letting the the thunder of Sinai really rip to terrify people and to disavow them of their self-righteousness and then give them the gospel in all of its sweetness. Okay. Let me read to you real quick the synopsis of the thesis from Walther's book. Okay. This is the proper distinction of long gospel. Thesis number one. The doctrinal contents of the entire Holy Scriptures, both of the Old and the New Testament, are made up of two differing uh, fundamental uh, form, each under uh, e- under each each other, the law and the gospel. Thesis number two: He is an orthodox teacher who not only presents all the articles of faith in accordance with Scripture, but also rightly distinguishes from each other the law and the gospel. Now. Uh, Scott, it's very clear you you have a a, a pretty good re- grasp at this point. This is actually a positive thing. You have a pretty good grasp of the rough outlines of law and gospel, and are and are beginning to put that the, that understanding into practice in your preaching. That is a positive thing that you're doing, and it's good. Let me continue. Um, thesis number three: rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. It is taught only by the Holy Spirit in the school of experience. That being the case, uh, don't be hard on yourself at this point because 
rightly distinguishing law and gospel is one of those things that even I have to apply myself to in order to get better at because it's it, you know believe me it, it it's not something that that you can master in a lifetime but you do get better at it and experience helps and so you're doing a fine job in keeping those distinct uh, those distinct categories because that's what you're doing here in the sermon you're doing law and gospel thesis 4 the true knowledge of the distinction between law and gospel is not only a glorious light affording the correct understanding of the entire holy scripture but without this knowledge scripture is and remains a sealed book thesis 5 the first manner of confounding law and gospel is the most easily recognized and the grossest. It is adopted, for instance, by uh, papists, that's what Lutherans call uh, 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 Roman Catholics, uh, it, rationalists and others, uh, that Christ is represented as the new Moses or the, new, or the lawgiver, and the gospel is turned into a doctrine of meritorious works, while at the same time those who teach that the gospel is the message of the free grace of God in Christ, they are condemned and anathematized, as is done by the as the papists. Now, Scott, you're not doing this. You're not guilty of confusing long gospel in this way. Thesis number six. In the second place, the word of, of God is not rightly divided when the law is not preached in its full sternness, and the gospel not in its full sweetness. When on the contrary, gospel elements are mingled with the law and the law elements with the gospel. Now, one of the things I want you to go back and listen to, Scott, and I'll try to point this out, is that there's a little bit of mixing of law and gospel in your sermon, even though you're, you're really working hard to keep those two separate, and I can really see that there. But what's missing here is the full sternness of the law. Rather than preaching, now there's a problem in the greater Christian church that there's a tendency to people, it it, it almost sounds like you're apologizing for this fact. Instead, you got to boldly proclaim to the flock and let the full sternness of the law. And it, it would uh, the the change uh, the change in tone and the, and the change of, of sternness would kind of go along the lines of this. Those of you here today, who think that God is uh, your personal genie, whose whose whole goal in life is to make you a more moral person and have little involvement? You are guilty of idolatry. You have made a false idol for yourself. And so, what you, you, you see the difference here? It's boldly proclaiming it and standing firm. It's that it's that sure confidence, not because it's your opinion, but because that's what God's word says. So that you can actually do the job of a shepherd and break the legs, if you would, of your wandering sheep. Those who are guilty of this form of idolatry, of thinking that their good works make them righteous before God. You have to call them on that, call it what it is, and then preach the text in such a way that you're applying it directly to them, not to some generic group of people within the Christian church. And um, part of that just has to do with really getting comfortable with doing it. Believe me when I tell you that the, it takes some getting used to to really, really hang it out there. And when you do that, you're going to make some people un- uncomfortable and maybe even mad. And that's a good thing. But preach the, go- the law in all of its sternness and then preach the gospel in all of its sweetness. Okay. And so um, what's missing here is kind of the sternness of the law to where they would say, wait a second, I'm guilty of doing this. The pastor's talking directly at me. Even though you may not have anyone in particular in mind, when you preach the law in its sternness, what's going to happen is, is that some you know, the people that are guilty of that sin are going to go, oh, man, I needed to hear this. Wow. Wow. They're going to feel like God is talking directly to them because he is. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Thesis 8, the fourth place. The word of God is not rightly divided when the law is preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sins or the gospel to those who live securely in their sins. And so, yeah, you got to, you, 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 that's a, another mixing of law and gospel. By the way, you know, so there, those are the ideas there. There's some more theses that are available on this. But again, I, I think that gives you the general idea, Scott, as to where we are uh, with the sermon at this point. And again, it's not that it's a bad sermon. It's actually a good sermon. But to take it to the next level, it has to be bold proclamation, not a generic problem, but a problem that somebody in that congregation is guilty of transgressing God's law, and they need to know that it's a sin, and they need to know that Christ died for it. We continue. I think we all can agree that pride is a bad thing. And when, the other side of that happens is people try. They try to complete the to-do list, and they realize they can't. All they have is despair because they have no more hope. If they can't do it, what's to be done? That's religion. And so the gospel says it's all about being forgiven. You see, the gospel tells us a different story and says that really there are none good but God. And here's how that works out. You take a room full of small children, and in that room you might have a child who's exceedingly smart or stronger than the other children, and, and that's great for them there, right? But you take that child and you put him in a room full of adults, and that child is no longer strong and no longer smart when compared to a higher standard. You see, we can have our own standards of goodness amongst us, and that's all well and fine. But ultimately, what we will be judged by is God's standard of goodness. And that standard is perfection. When I was in college, someone shared this with me, and they, they said, Right, see, that's where you really want, and the standard is perfection. That's where you would really want to stop and really push the sternness of the law here so that they know that they're sinners in need of grace. And you, and you kind of moved on to your next illustration, which would, this would have been the perfect point, point to really let Sinai thunder. It, it, when you let Sinai thunder, then the, then the cross really becomes that much sweeter. Do you think you're a good person? I, oh, yeah, sure, I'm a great person. You know, Most people think I'm really swell, and, and people generally like me, right? And they said, well, have you ever lied to someone? Well, yeah, I've lied to someone. What, what a big deal. Well, what do you call someone who lies to you? A liar? Oh, I'm a, I'm a liar now. Okay. And then they shared some of these other Ten Commandments with them. You might be familiar with them. And, and um, indeed, in thought, we can both sin and break those. It's not just what we do. Sometimes it's even what we think and what's in our heart. And I realized that, wow, I'm, I'm really not the great, greatest person I thought I was. And that's where the good news comes in. Because despite us not being good, God loves us and has done something. Romans says it like this. He who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, became our very sin on the cross so that we might have the righteousness of God. See, it's not about us being good. It's about us being forgiven. That's the gospel. Number three, religion deals only with symptoms while the gospel cures disease. Proverbs says it like this. Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Here's what it's saying, is that what you do is a reflection of who you are inside. And religion tries to say, well, let's fix all these outside things, all these symptoms, your anger, your addiction, your, your, your just overall roughness. Let's just deal with those outside things. It's like a doctor who only wants to deal with your cough or your runny nose while you have a terrible disease running inside you. Right. Good point. Excellent point. Great point. Push it home for the people listening that are there that day. The gospel is different than that because the gospel says God wants to start from the inside out. 
See, when we become a Christian, we don't just change from the outside. We change from the inside. And from that inward change where God changes our heart and our mind, then those things that are on the outside, those eventually get worked out in what's something John Wesley called sanctification, where God works in the rest of our lives. Actually, the Bible calls it that. Wesley got it from the Bible. Just want to point that out. Changing us in the person he would have us to be. That's the gospel. And the real shame, I think, in religion is that it minimizes our sin and it minimizes the grace of God. Again, great points. Because when your sin isn't that big a deal, when religion tells you your sin is just your mess-ups, your failures, which is what I heard a long time for my life, when I thought, my failures, so when I failed that uh, test in school, do I need to go, go to church and ask God for forgiveness? Is that what happened? It's just a failure? When they make it like that, when they minimize your sin, the grace that God gives you to forgive that is no longer that amazing. Because when I realized what my sin really was and who I really was and how I would stand before God one day, completely without excuse, without justification on my own, then when I realized the grace he offers me, then it became so amazing. And I could realize just how much God loved me. Exactly. Great point. Again, great, perfectly fine testimony. But as a preacher, you've got to now help those people experience that themselves. You have to boldly, sternly proclaim the law in such a way that they have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Realize that you're preaching not about your problem, but about their problem. That would just take this to the next level. And again, you're not going to be comfortable doing it. Because you're going you're gonna to be calling people sinners. And it's okay to say that you're guilty of transgressing these commandments yourself. That's being honest and confessing. But boldly and sternly preach the law here so that they realize that this, wasn't, this isn't just about your story. This is their story too. See, religion knows nothing of amazing grace. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. And so those are the ways in which it plays out. And, and in this week, uh, in prepping for the sermon, I was reading a book, and it's called Christless Christianity. And that's really what you could call this, this form of religion, especially when it's, um, it plays out amongst uh, professing Christians. And the foreword of the book was written by a Methodist bishop. His name is uh, Bishop Will Willimon, and he's in northern Alabama. And I have the very privilege this week of corresponding with him uh, through email. And he's a very gracious guy, and he's doing a lot of wonderful things. And I thank God for, for what he's doing. And in the book, he's, he, there's, he has a quote, and it's a very indicative quote. And it assesses the situation of religion in this country, how it plays out in all different kinds of contexts. And I wanted to share that with you today because I believe he's a much wiser person than I am. He says, lacking confidence in the power of our story to affect that of which it speaks, to evoke a new people out of nothing, our communication loses its nerve. Nothing is said that cannot be heard elsewhere. In conservative context, gospel speech is traded for dogmatic assertion and moralism, for self-help psychologies and narcotic mantras. In more liberal speech, talk tiptoes around the outrage of Christian discourse and ends up as an innocuous, though urbane, affirmation of the ruling order. Unable to preach Christ and him crucified, we preach humanity and it improved. You can go to one of the largest churches in America, a little down south in a town called Houston, and you can hear sermons every week that are all about you. 
And they're all about you being the better person you can be. And they're all about you living your best life now. The problem with that is, not only is that what Christianity is about, but you ask Christians in other countries who are being persecuted for their faith, you ask the apostles who were killed for their faith if they were living their best life now. Being rich, being, being happy is not what God calls us to be. God calls us to be changed through him and people that love him and love the gospel and love other people and want to share that with him. Okay, this is where the long gospel categories get a little bit muddied, okay? However, the strength of the sermon itself, I think, does a, a good enough job so that it's, it doesn't create co- total confusion. You want to make sure you're not mixing long gospel here. You've got to be real careful. Religion is a lot of good advice. It really is sometimes. But you know what? So is Dr. Phil. And I, don't, and I don't need good advice. I need good news. So do all of you. So- Amen. Amen. And see, this is where, this is a good story. And so do all of you. Yes, they need good news. But that good news needs a context. So that's, that's why the, I, I think the weakness in the sermon here is that the, the law wasn't preached in all of its sternness so that the gospel has all of its sweetness. That's, that's really the, what's the missing component here. What is the world? And that's the difference. That is the difference. And so what do we do and what's the problem and what do we do? I think Second Timothy chapter 4 really summarizes not only what the problem is, but also gives us a really great solution. And, and, and Paul in this, in this book is, is giving instructions to Timothy, who was a young guy who was uh, sent to lead a church, and, and Paul is giving him instructions. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That latter half just amazes me about God because he not only could predict and tell us what was going to happen then, he's telling us what is happening now. Let me read that again. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I think a lot of, of great, great, great men and women of God who have a passion for the gospel, they want to share with people, but what happens is they worry too much about results, and they think it's the power of them to change people and save people. So what they do, they will do anything to get people to come. And what happens is, is they fall into religion. When I realized that the power was not in me, the power was not my power to change, not my power to save anybody, I realized there was one thing I could do, and that was proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And I will let God... Work everything out. How we- okay, now, Scott, this is a fine point, okay? Talking about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ is different than actually proclaiming it. You've got sound theology here. It's great Christ-centered theology. And you're teaching it, but you're not proclaiming it. There's a difference. That's the, that's the missing ingredient. That's the salt that's missing in the soup, is boldly proclaiming it to these individual sinners that God has placed under your care. We will. That's what it says. Preach the word in season and out of season. When it's convenient, that's always fun. And when it's not convenient, and that is an honor. So what can we do? We should be people of the gospel. 
That's all we can do. Let's let God work everything out. Let's God figure out the results, but let us be obedient and worship and love of God and proclaim the good news he has to tell people. I don't know who you are in that situation today. Some people in this room, I don't know, might need the gospel today. You might be like I was. For- okay, this is where it's weak. <clears throat> no, everybody there today, including me listening to you preaching right now, I need to hear the gospel today. Absolutely, don't, don't think that there's somebody there who doesn't. Okay, but create that context for their needing it by preaching the law and all of its sternness and giving us the gospel and the forgiveness of sins and proclaiming boldly, unashamedly, scandalously the forgiveness of sins in Christ. That that's where uh, we continue for a long part of my life until I got to college and not living as a Christian, even though I would call it that, but living by mere religion. And you might need the gospel like I did. It was a season of my life in which I became a completely different person. You can ask my family. You can ask my friends. You can ask my extended family who I would see. And I believe you. I absolutely believe you. And notice how, how you told us in your story how somebody used the law to show you that you were a sinner. Now, pastor, your job is to preach the law and show these dear, beloved sheep that God has given you to care for and to feed their sins and give them Christ. Uh, at a year at a time, and they can definitely tell differences in me. And you can see that with people who truly love the gospel. And I ask you today, is that you? Or are you someone who is a Christian and loves God and needs to share that with people and knows people whose idea of Christianity is religion? One of the common objections I get to Christianity that it's all a bunch of rules, it's all a bunch of moralism, and I just, I don't need that. And I think that's so sad because they're rejecting something that even, that, that's not what it even is. So, who are you in this situation? That's what I ask you to think about today. I ask you to really think about it and pray about it. And my, my prayer for our church, for our town, for our country, and for our world is that we do away with religion and embrace the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father... Okay, stop right there. So that's the first of these two very short sermons, losing our religion. And again, sound doctrine, fairly good, decent job of proper distinction between law and gospel, uh, the problem being idolatry and uh, and thinking our religion placates God as opposed to the solution being the gospel. Decently done. The problem was, is it was done. In, it was proclaimed in a hypothetical, almost, re, almost removed kind of way. And um, Pastor Scott, get in people's faces with law and gospel. Get them uncomfortable with their sin. Get them fearing the wrath of God for their sin, and give them Christ and Him crucified as the solution to that that burning wrath of God. They need to feel the law and all of its sternness. Now, here's the second of the two of the two sermons, and this one's entitled "The Tales We Tell," and it's uh, a, a, the sermon text is Amos chapter five verses twenty one through twenty four. Here again is uh, Scott uh, uh, Kingsolver. I appreciate that, and uh, I'm blessed to be here, and, and I'm glad to be here. Um, if you've been here at this church for uh, any really no amount of time, even if it's this is your first time or uh, it's been years, uh, you're probably very aware that this church is in a very unique position. Um, 
what we could just say physically, if you look at where we are in Preston Road here or uh, geographically here in Frisco, um, that this church is a, is a booming population or even in America where we have many freedoms and opportunities uh, for our church. Um, and, and I feel very blessed by that because we're at, a very, we're at a very interesting point in our history where there's a lot of opportunity to really start um, booming, if you will, um, uh, for a church and do some exciting things. And it's a very exciting time. Even though I'm excited by that and I love that, there's an anxiety within my heart. There's things that the Lord presses upon me because as I look back in history, whether it be uh, in Scripture or uh, through the course of Christianity, we see sometimes... Uh, movements and churches and leaders who who fall in these traps, these tales we tell ourselves um, that, that get us into a position where we're doing maybe perhaps what God wants us to be doing, but for some reason He's still not very happy about that. And um, if you have your Bible today, you can turn to the Book of Amos. Uh, if you want to find it uh, yourself, it's a little it, you may not be familiar with it, um, but it's uh, one of our wonderful Old Testament prophets. I felt like going old school today and uh, going prophet on you guys. Um, it's in Amos chapter 5, starting at verse 21. If you want some background in this, uh, Israel was uh, in a time where there was a lot of uh, basic immorality going on, which isn't too uh, uncommon in the Old Testament when you look at Israel. Unfortunately, it's very sad. Um, they were oppressing the poor. They were, there was a lot of injustice going on in their nation. Yet... If you were to kind of think about it contemporarily, there was church attendance wasn't down. Um, they were uh, worshiping as they should be worshiping. They were uh, giving uh, as they should be giving, perhaps. Um, they were you know, giving the offerings as they should. Um, yet God was not very happy with them. And in the book of Amos, he gets very, very direct with them, very co- uh, confrontational almost, and tells them how he feels about what's going on because their heart, their lives were not matching what they were doing in their little uh, religious bubble. And in fact, Israel was no longer being a light to the world of the nations around them, but in fact, they were just like everyone else around them instead of a light to show who God is to those around them. Okay, now keep in mind, the reason why that uh, God was not happy with their, quote, religion is because it was, everything was done without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so this text itself lends itself to you turning to your audience and saying, do you think that you're pleasing God by being here in church today? If you think that being in church and coming to church or tithing somehow makes you holy and right before God, that's done not in faith. That's done with the idea that you're a religious idea that you make yourself holy by what you do. That's not the gospel. And you need to smash that idol, go after unrelentingly, scorching the eyebrows off of the people in the first row with the with the fires of Sinai against that idol and then proclaiming Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins for this for this issue i i i bring that up because even though you are a young guy don't let the fact that you are young and don't have a lot of experience preaching let, don't let that be an excuse for you to not boldly proclaim the truth of God. You're not doing it on your own authority, even your own experience. You're doing it based upon the authority of Christ and what he's done, and it's a sure and certain word, and you can proclaim it boldly. We pick up in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your festivals. 
And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I love God because he really doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't, you know, come knock on the door and say, excuse me, this isn't quite how I would want it to be. Could you be a little better? If if that's okay, if that's okay, I don't want to offend anybody, that's okay. Um, Instead, if you look at the, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, if you even look at the apostles and the disciples and Jesus and John the Baptist, there's a reason people like John the Baptist were beheaded. There's a reason why the, the uh, uh, disciples were, were persecuted, because they spoke boldly the words of God to people because they desperately needed to hear them. And the people... Right. Oh, man. Scott, listen to the point you just made. Listen to the point you just made. You, the point you made is so brilliant. It's correct. It's true. When you preach the word, do it the same way John the Baptist did. Do it the same way the prophets did. You are speaking and teaching in a prophetic office as a pastor. People in Israel desperately needed to be awakened to the fact that their lives were not matching the religious activity they were involved in. And so, okay, same with the people there hearing you today. Same with the people hearing your sermon today on this radio program. Same thing. See, that's why I feel like this, when, when I hear you preach, there's, just, there's a level of disconnect. You're preaching about boldness. Yet, as a pastor, you are called to boldly proclaim the very oracles of God given in God's word. You're not called to preach about boldness. You are to boldly proclaim the truth. See the difference? That's that's where the disconnect is. Theologically, I love what you're doing. I love that you're preaching on a text. Need to hear you boldly proclaiming this theology, not correctly teaching it. Although when you boldly proclaim it, you should correctly teach it. I'm not saying that that's not important. You see, theology is for proclamation. It is. Proclaim, proclaim, boldly proclaim. You, Scott, boldly proclaim. And as we move forward as a church, while I think we are a healthy, wonderful church, there are traps we can fall into that could uh, veer us away from the will of God, veer us away from the mission of the church, and get us to a point where this church is merely a bubble. We come and do our own thing here, but as we go out into the world, out to the community, we basically live separate lives. And so there's three ways I think this happens, and if there's three ways we can look at them and always be looking at ourselves to say, is this happening? Are we making sure we are in the truth? Are we making sure we are in God's will? Are we doing what God wants us to be doing and also for the right reasons? And so I think if we can look at that, we can um, possibly do a little prevention of that as well. The first one has to do... Okay, forget prevention. Assume that these three points that you're going to make that you have people in your congregation who are going to hear this who are absolutely dead to rights guilty. Forget prevention. Let's talk about perpetration. With the idea of getting to do something versus having to do something. Now, uh, when you think of that, it probably sounds pretty obvious. When you get to do something, you're probably pretty happy about it, I imagine. Um, as opposed to having to do something, it, it reminds me of chores 
or um, an obligation. For instance, if someone here at church were to come up to me and uh, say, Scott, I have a, a pass, a, a ticket for the first Monday night football game at Dallas Stadium, uh, I would probably feel like, hey, I get to go. I get to go pay $60 to park, and I get to pay $20 for a drink and $30 for a hot dog, and I would feel glad about it, right? I would get to do it. It would be very wonderful. And if you think about things in your life that you feel like you get to do, there are things you're happy to do, that you're joyful to do, that in your spirit you're just so alive when you get to do them because it's a joy to you and you love them. We're supposed to having to do something. Um, when I think about this, I think about growing up in my house and having to having to uh, mow my lawn as a teenager um, and even throughout a little bit of college. Um, and you could ask my dad how good a job I did. Um, we might differ in that opinion. I might think I did a good job, but often he would send me back out to finish it and do it right, um, which is wonderful. But when I did it, I wasn't just sitting there saying, oh, I'm so happy, I'm so, I'm so privileged to be able to mow this lawn. I have a working lawnmower, and I don't have to bag it anymore, and I have a house I, could, I, I get to live in. No, I really kind of sat there at the lawnmower kind of grumbling the entire time. You know, I was, it, was, it was hot, I'm allergic to grass, which always kind of seemed pretty cruel that I still had to do it. Um, but I was never very happy about it, right? And e- so even though I was doing the thing that my father wanted me to do, even though it may not have been the best quality, I was still doing it and it still was accomplished, but I was not honoring my father, if you really think about it and get down to it on a very sincere level, because my heart was not in a direction of affection towards him, but rather I almost resented the fact that I had to do it. And so when it comes to our Christian life, if that's our, our, our attitude about the things we do, if we feel like we have to do something. If that's your attitude, see, <clears throat> repeat after me, boldly proclaiming goes something like this. If that's your attitude about God, then you are sinning and you're not, this is not a response of faith. You, you see, press hard on the law and personalize it. Even though we're doing them, they might be the right thing. We do not honor our Father in heaven. And it kind of kills me that it's like this, because if you think about the Christian life, it's this wonderful, amazing story. Here we have God who creates everything there is, the universe, perfect good. He creates us in his own image, which is remarkable in the fact of itself. And yet from the very beginning, we rebel against God. We sin against God. We deserve to be punished for that. Yet he doesn't want that. So he comes as Jesus Christ, dies on a cross for our sins, rises on the third day, offers us new life, and we repent of those sins and put our faith in jesus this wonderful thing happens called salvation it's justification like we talked about to the children Okay, now notice i'm going to point this out here we just heard the gospel but it almost sounds like it's throwaway the reason why it sounds like it's throwaway because it's not given in contradistinction to really wicked rebellion against god that that you and them and i and everybody else is guilty of you know, so it sounds like the gospel here is being tossed away almost. <sighs> Preach the law in all of its sternness and then apply the gospel as the solution, and you won't have the gospel as a throwaway, but as the main, main point, Christ and him crucified for our sins. Like, it, like our sins never happen. It's wonderful. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, changes us, where we can love God, we can love other people, yet somehow we go from there to... Well, I guess I have to go to church today. I guess I, I guess I really should read my Bible. I guess I, I guess I should, I guess I should volunteer and help out with, you know, the three-year-olds or the, or the third graders or the sixth graders or the seniors ministry or whatever it is. 
this whole thing that we call Christianity and church becomes sort of, sort of obligation to us. We go from the God of the universe forgiving us full pardon of our sin and changing us and restoring this wonderful relationship with him to feeling like it's some sort of like a chore to enjoy that. Okay, the solution here, though, is law and gospel. Law sternly, sternly preached. Remember, what does Christ say? He who is forgiven much loves much. Show them their sickness. Show them how big their forgiveness is. And from that flows the solution to the problem that you presented. I just, I can't, I can't, I can't explain how that always happens. I think sometimes repetition and, 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 um, just, and, and sometimes the leaders allowing that kind of thing to happen where we don't really impress upon the, the wonderful beauty that is the relationship with Christ. Sometimes we, we, we kind of get in our own kind of modes of just going through the motions. Last week we heard about that as well. And it's just, it just kind of kills me that that, that happens. And so, as we move forward, the question I would ask us when we, when we do things is, do we feel like we get to or do we feel like we have to? If it's get to, then it might be that the, the problem is, is that law and gospel is not really being boldly proclaimed from the pulpit. The, I'm, you know, just saying. And the problem is when you feel like you have to do something, it's generally the first thing that you will just forget about when things get tough. For instance, in America, like I mentioned earlier, we're free to worship as we, as we please, and it's a wonderful, wonderful right and blessing. Yet there are people in the world who are Christians who are persecuted for their faith to this day. It is illegal to be a Christian. It is illegal to worship Jesus. It's illegal to even have a Bible in places. Yet those people, if it was merely a chore for them, if it was merely an obligation, I don't think they would be doing that. I don't think they would be worshiping. I think it would be... Okay, this is a confusion of law and gospel because what you're doing here, Scott, is you're using the law and guilt to try to generate Christian good works and sanctification. You can't do it that way. You have to do it through the gospel. You have to do it through law and gospel properly preached. So this kind of falls into the category of that naggy law that I've talked about. So that's, that's a weakness here at this point. Although I've heard the gospel... It was presented in such a way that it was a throwaway point rather than the main point as a counter to our sinfulness. Easy just to give up. Same thing with the disciples, right? How much persecution did they face? It was so incredibly hard, so incredibly hard, yet they still did it because they experienced Jesus. They, they knew Jesus. And so for them, it was not some obligation. It was a privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ. Second thing. And this kind of is very strange and odd to me, is that sometimes we feel with our actions that we can manipulate God, which is really kind of silly if you think about it, right? Because here's God and here's us, and we think we can tell him what to do, kind of. It's kind of like when you have a small... Lose the kind ofs. Find a way to take this to the next level. You think that you think that you can manipulate God through your good works. It's really silly, this this idea that you can manipulate God through your good works. And yet... You and I both know that you know we're guilty of doing this. Bring them along in the guilt. Bring them along. You are guilty of doing this. You've got to nail them to the wall on the sins. So you preach the law to, to kill them. You've got to slay them. It, it sounds cruel, but it's, exa- it's exactly what all of us need. Child, and, and, and they're kind of being the boss of the house. It always kind of confuses me how that happens when you have a child who kind of runs the family because, you know, the parents are the ones that provide for them, the parents are the ones that brought them into this world. And uh, I always like 
I remember a, an old Bill Cosby show. Some of you may remember it. It's like the first one, the first episode where he tells them he brought them into this world and he can take them out as well, right? Parents are, are above their children, yet sometimes the children run the parents. And sometimes in Christianity, we get in this mindset or we get, where we're told sometimes that if we do this thing or that thing and we pray this way, we pray the right prayer and we, we, we do the right church service, that God will have to do the things we want him to do. In fact, there's whole theologies, there's whole churches, there's whole pastors who this is their main, main thing. It says if you say... And that's how we all are by nature. So forget the theologies out there. That's something that we all suffer from by nature. We all have this misconception about God. The right things, God has to do something. As if God's hands are tied and says, well, well, I guess you said the right magic words. You get the password. Here's your, you know, whatever you want. We also manipulate God sometimes by trying to hide from God. In the story of, of Adam and Eve, one of the first things they do when they've, they've, they've sinned and eaten of the forbidden fruit is they, they hide from God because they know he's coming, which I always laugh about. And when I talk to youth, I always tell them it's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in the history of humanity. They could tell me the weirdest things they've ever done. They could think they've done something stupid. And I'll tell them, ultimately, there are two people a long, long time ago who did probably the dumbest thing you can do. Because here's God walking through the garden and they're hiding from him as if he's like looking with, a, with binoculars, wondering where these people are. He created everything. I think he has probably a good idea where they are. And we sometimes hide from God or sometimes we manipulate God because we try to bargain with him. You ever uh, seen anyone or heard anyone or even done this yourself where um, yeah, they've all done it. We've all done it. See, you, you here's the deal. The nice thing about the, the doctrine of original sin is, is that we're all guilty of doing all of this. Preach them as guilty. We try to make a deal with God as if he's um, in need of a deal. Um, and the thing about uh, Jesus is that once he becomes your savior, he also becomes your Lord. And as Lord or king, he has dominion over all your life. That means your, your job, your relationships, your money, everything, right? Everything. And yet sometimes there's this one part of us that we don't want to let go of. <clears throat> Incorrect use of law and gospel here. Again, CFW Walther's book, The Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel, mandatory reading for you, Scott. I think that would help you out a lot. I'm going to I'm going to stop right there. I think you get the gist of what's going on in these sermons. There's only a couple of minutes left, but um, you know my time is short today, so unfortunately I have to back out at this point. But Scott, again. You have some great theology, and you understand the need for the gospel. And in your preaching, the thing that's missing is bold proclamation and the sternness of the law and the sweetness of the gospel in such a way as to slay and make alive the very sinners that God has placed under your care You know, when you're preaching. That's really what's missing. So again, homework for you. Homework. Um, Theology is for Proclamation by Gearhart Forty on Being a Theologian of the Cross by Gearhart Forty, um, Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther, and a book called The Homiletical Plot by Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. Now, I, I, I know it sounds odd that a radio guy would give you a, a homework, and I'm not doing it because, you know, I like giving homework, but I really, truly think uh, since you came to me asking for constructive criticism, that those books will help f- reframe the preaching uh, task in such a way that it will help you see with better clarity where it is that, where and how to boldly proclaim and to tell the story of redemption and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to the sinners that God has placed under your care. 
there at your church in uh, Frisco, Texas. So again, Scott, love what you're doing and really, really looking forward to seeing how you mature in your in your uh, in your preaching and looking forward to hearing the next few sermons from you as God continues to give you that experience and boldly help you through the spirit boldly proclaim forgive repentance and the forgiveness of sins to the individual sinners that God has placed in your care. All right. We are rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith and I need to remind you Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. Right now we're looking for a thousand of our listeners. That's all y'all out there. Uh, to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, you do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and click on Join Our Crew. And, of course, if you'd like to donate a f- uh, flat amount of money, you can by clicking on our Donate button. By the way, the crew is only $6.95 a month. We're talking two and a half gallons of gas a month. And uh, and it helps us continue to uh, bring to you Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Don't Flat donations, click on the Donate button, or you can make your gifts payable to Fighting for the Faith and send them to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, I apologize that I I, I have uh, something I have to tend to tonight, so I, I must sign off. But would love to get your feedback, and you can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or asking to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, even for a wretched, stinking, rotten sinner as bad and terrible as you and me. Amen. Amen.